This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let us turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. There was like five or six weeks, and now we are in Colossians chapter 2. I'm excited about this one this morning. We'll begin Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. While you're turning there, let me tell you, make a little confession to you, that I do not keep a very clean email inbox. I try. I really, really try. And uh, so here's, here's how my inbox works. My emails generally fall into three categories, and I'll kind of label them like this. So my favorite emails, and the ones that I consider to be the most important are what I will call my shepherding emails. Many of you, when you communicate, you prefer emails or texts to phone calls. So I and other people on our staff, other people on our leadership, we send emails every week just checking in on people. Asking about, you know, if there's something specific, you know, happening in your lives. Asking about how we can pray for you. Just kind of trying to get a sense of how you're doing. And sometimes people email me back and say, they, they say, pray for this, or here's a little update on me. Those are my favorite. They're always what I give my first time and all my, my most focused energy to. So we've got shepherding emails. After that, uh, I've got what I call operations emails. Uh, we have, um, we've got a lot that goes on here. And, and I'm involved in just about everything that goes on here to varying degrees. And so <coughs> we've got, We've got ministries, we've got events, there's facility stuff that needs to happen. I oversee our church staff. Uh, There's just all kinds of things that go into being a public organization in the real world, and uh, a a bit of my time, a good deal of it, in fact, is just taken up by kind of leading this group and uh, having the facility that we have and all that stuff. And then there's a third category. There's a third category of my emails, and this is the one I just really dislike. And you get these two. Mine are just weirder than yours. That's, that's, that's the bottom line. So every week, I get dozens. I don't know. I, I, I never count them. I just delete them mostly. But I'm sure I get dozens. And these are emails trying to get me to buy stuff or sign up for stuff or join something. So we call these marketing emails. You get marketing emails. You get lots of marketing emails. Here's where mine are weirder than yours. I get bunches of emails every single week from church consulting groups or leadership development coaches or other kinds of advertising emails. And I get all these emails basically promising to deliver what as far as I can tell as I read the Bible Only God is supposed to be able to deliver, but I get lots of emails every week promising to be able to deliver that. And so I get emails promising that if I just do something, we will have more conversions as a part of our church. We will have more people that want to get baptized as a part of our church. We will have more successful evangelism if I will sign up for whatever they're saying. And so these emails basically say, we can help you be a better church. Just pay us, and we'll do it. That seems backwards to me, like really backwards. If you know how I can have more people 
see and believe and be transformed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ, please don't put that behind a paywall. Please just tell me how to make that happen. I want to know. Maybe I'm not very business savvy. I'm not. I'm a pastor. I'm not a businessman. (coughs) But doesn't it seem like overly selfish to make people pay for what you think might be a movement that God wants to make? I've gotten emails that promise that we could have revival in our church if we would only just follow this simple. Now, here's the problem. Revivals are, by definition, an unusual and unexpected movement of the Holy Spirit. How can you possibly tell me you've got a revival program? Only the Holy Spirit knows how to make revival. And you can't predict where or when it's going to happen. But I get emails promising. A few hundred dollars, we can have a revival. So here's the truth of all this. I've been doing this for a while. Uh, this is, I'm in my 11th year here at Our Savior. I was at a great church in Colorado before that, and another good one for a year and a half before that. <coughs> Sorry, I'm working through something apparently. So I'm in like seven, year 17 or 18, doing this on staff at churches. And the longer I do this, the more and more convinced I am that as a pastor, the, the, the kind of the, the longer that, that God has, has called me to be a leader with other leaders in, in the lives of churches, the more I read the Bible. Programs, strategies, whatever kind of ingenuity we might think we're bringing is completely overrated. Thank you very much, Nate. Appreciate that. So program strategies and ingenuity is overrated. Our mission, our vision, our calling as a church is to unite in truth, love one another deeply, and to hold out for everyone who will listen the only hope that matters, which is the life, death, resurrection, and the present kingship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the friend of sinners. He comes near to the hurting. And he has mastery over every other power. I don't know what we think we can add to that or put around that that will make it better or more appealing. I don't know what we think we can bring to that that will enhance it in any way. And and the reason that that I'm more and more convicted of that isn't because it's it's something that I think I've come up with. I think that's from God. God's word in the Bible has much to say uh, about the shared life of Christians in the church. But it doesn't point to new ideas and new methods. It points to unity. It points to truth. It points to supernatural love, and it points to laying down our lives so that the good news of Jesus might be spread. It's as simple as that. It's not complicated to figure out what it is that we should be about. We're called in unity to proclaim truth, 
to love one another in a supernatural way and to lay down our lives so the gospel might be spread. And we don't need elaborate programs to figure that out. We only need to read our Bibles. And that message, that's a big part of where we begin in in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. So I really want you to, uh, to follow along as I read this. So if you didn't bring a Bible, use the one in the rack in front of you and listen here as I read. Colossians chapter 2, we'll pick it up where the chapter does, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So there are three things that I want you to know in here. First, though, we, we have to set something straight before I just lay out those three, three things. Paul is here speaking to Christians. When we talk about understanding mysteries and, and, and not being deceived, we have to acknowledge that it's possible that won't land with everyone in the same way. The Bible is clear that Christians will see and and understand things in the world differently than non-believers. But, and this is a huge caution, being told that we're going to see things differently than non-believers should never be a reason for Christians to boast or for their level of pride to raise, or to be arrogant about this understanding of mystery and revelation in any way. The only way that you are able to understand anything of spiritual reality is because you've been made alive By the Holy Spirit. And secondly, that doesn't mean that you aren't still capable of serious and even harmful error. So it's not a stretch to say that Christians should, of all people, be the most humble in the world. We're the ones who should consistently be aware that if our lives are left up to us, we would be a huge mess. We should know that better than anybody. If you're left on your own, you're going to be a mess. So Christian, is any person that can admit the shortcomings and their wrongdoings and repent of that, now... Every Christian must believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that is our source of hope. That's our boast is Christ. 
If you want to know what a Christian should think of themselves, they should first think, I'm a mess. But God has put me together in Christ. So praise be to his name, because if this is just all on me, I'm in big, big trouble. So let's be clear. Christians are not perfect people who've conquered sin. It's actually the opposite. We're convinced that we're never going to conquer sin on our own. And so we've just, we've given up trying. And we're putting every bit of our trust and our hope in Jesus. And what we're celebrating, what we're celebrating this morning, every time we get together, we're celebrating that Jesus has already conquered sin. And now his victory is our victory. Second thing about Christians is we need to recognize that we're never finished. If you came in here feeling like a bit of a failure this morning, and all you can think is, I just, I just have so far to go. I have so much that needs to be put right in my heart, my mind, my life. You'll fit right in. Because this is a group of people that should know better than anyone that our lives are are truly kind of works in progress, that our hearts open to God, being transformed and renewed by God, are in progress, not finished. I think there's something that, that even most Christians don't understand about the entirety of the Christian life. And that's that the longer you are a Christian, the more you should realize truly how far you have to go. You realize that? The longer you're a Christian, the more you should realize how far you have to be go, how far you have to go, how much work is still to be done in you, not in other people, not in people out there, in you. And it's only going to work if that can be your posture. Do I recognize the Apostle Paul, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, says, and I am the foremost of sinners. If he says that, what are we? Christian life is about recognizing that God will not ever be finished with us this side of heaven. So a few weeks ago, I was hiking in Colorado with some longtime friends. And we were hiking uh, what's called a 14er. There are just under, in the, in, the, in the continental contiguous United States, there are just under 70 mountains with peaks above 14,000 feet. But there are no peaks above 15,000 feet. So a 14er is kind of a goal for hikers, mountain climbers in the at least contiguous 48. You have to go to Alaska to get taller than that. And so we were, we were hiking a 14er. I don't know the exact number that I've summited. I've, I've, I've done several. And, and in my experience, this is how it goes. You never walk straight. You don't, you don't just go, well, there's the mountain. I guess I'll just head that way. You don't walk straight up a 14,000-foot mountain. You follow a trail. It winds up the mountain. And when you get high enough, what you start, I, I have this experience every time I hike a 14er. When you get high enough, you start thinking, I've been doing this for a long time. 
We've been walking a long time now. I'm tired. We're really, we're really high. I can see a, a long way down, well above the tree line. We must be just about there. And it's just about that time that you end up coming over a ridge or getting some kind of a view that you couldn't see before. But now that you're there, you realize you still have, you know, another mile left on the hike and another 2,000 feet of elevation to climb. You couldn't see it until you even got up higher. You couldn't see how much farther you still had to go. That's the way it is with the Christian life. You're walking the path, but the more you climb, the better your view should be of what's still in front of you. If as a Christian, the majority of your thoughts are, wow, all these other people still have so far to go, I wonder if it's just that you're still down far on the mountain. So there are three things for humble Christians in these verses. Just, I'm going to label them, label them with just three words. Number one, I want humble Christians to find assurance in these verses. Number two, warning. There's a warning for us here. And number three, there's a huge encouragement. There's a huge encouragement in here. Assurance, warning, encouragement. So Paul writes to assure these believers that what they have been told, what they've been believing is true. Second, he wants to warn them against deceit. And lastly, he wants to encourage them that despite hardship, despite opposition, they are flourishing as a body of Christ in Colossae. And we're in a good position as a church to, to receive these things um, that were said of that church then for our church now. This is a good thing. Because it says in verse 5, Paul is, is rejoicing as he writes this letter. So there's much, much, much for us to rejoice in and there's much for us to take out of this. So before we get to that encouragement, let's talk about being assured in the truth. Being assured in the truth. So in verse 1, Paul says that his particular struggle for these people, for another church, there's a church nearby at Laodicea, it's about 10 or 11 miles away, neither of whom he knows personally, he, he wasn't there when the church was founded, but his struggle is that they would reach what he calls, just kind of put your, Bible, your eyes down in your Bible, what he calls full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So his concern comes from the possibility that some people in the church may stray from the truth of Christ, and the result would be a break of fellowship in the church. So his concern actually has two elements bound together. First, first concern, their confidence in Christ would be shaken. If that happens, it triggers the second thing, that their unity would be broken. Without unity around Christ, they're not going to have a real unity. So I love the way he does this because it shows us how God gives assurance through truth and how God gives unity 
through love. Assurance through truth, unity through love. But neither is going to work without the other. So if somebody asks, what does it mean to live as a Christian? You can't answer that question without both truth and love. You cannot separate truth or love in the Christian life. What does it mean to be a Christian? You have to be a person who believes truth, and you have to be a person who shows love. <clears throat> so you can't say, all you have to know is no, all you have to know is true things. So that's clear that, that that's not enough in uh, take, for instance, 1 Corinthians 13:1 where it says that you can be extraordinarily gifted or have remarkable faith, but if you don't have love, you've got nothing. But you also can't say, I'm a loving person. I'm kind. So what does it matter what the motivation for my love is? In other words, if I'm a loving person, if I'm a good person, what does it matter what I personally believe? You can't say that either because in John 8, 32, Jesus says you shall know the truth and the truth is what sets you free. So assurance from God that we are in Christ comes from truth and love bound together. So listen to how this works. It's equally correct to say that God draws us to himself by truth and by love. God draws us to himself according to his word, which is complete truth. But he also does it by love. Because though he would gain nothing from us, he gave his one and only son up for us all the way to death. And there has never been more love shown to you or to me than Jesus showed us on the cross. So Paul writes, stand firm, be resolute in what you believe. It's not just something that's true, but what you believe is the revelation of a mystery that people have been trying to figure out for millennia. So this is true and then further, if you wander away from this, you're no longer going to be united in love and everything that God has built will fall apart. So then we should ask, if those are the stakes, if we can wander away from truth, if love, if you, the love that unites us can, can, can dissolve and we can fall apart... Those are the truly the stakes. We should ask, how do we do that? How do we stay in the truth? And how do we remain in love for one another? Paul gives us an answer to that question as well. This is the end of verse 2, beginning of, the first, of, of verse 3. So the knowledge of God's mystery, that's Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So every piece of wisdom and knowledge that truly matters is found in Christ. It's knowledge of him that assures us 
and love of him that unites us. You can't be saved without knowing Christ. And you can't walk in love without looking at Jesus and having your heart transformed by him. So it seems like Paul's concern was in this church and in ours for anything that would go beyond Christ, either in what they believe or in how they act together that would pull them apart. And folks, the same possibilities still exist today. It's very possible that if we don't agree that Christ is all and Christ is central and Christ is supreme to us, and we begin to say, well, it's Christ, but it's Christ and something else, or it's Christ plus this, or in addition to Christ, we need to also say that these things need to be very precious to us. If we let them, secondary beliefs could pull us apart. And more than any other time in my life, I'm concerned that secondary beliefs are pulling apart Christians and pulling apart churches. And that's not hyperbole to say, because I've seen it happen over the past couple of years. So I say this with as much, as much earnestness and seriousness as, as, as I've ever said anything to you. We have to be more sure than ever that we are committed to the truth of Christ and we have to be equally sure that we will refuse to let anything less than Christ come between us. And that's not easy. There is much in the world that has the possibility to divide us. We need to decide that it won't. That we will be united in love in the truth of Christ. So let me just give us three or four ways that we can stay united, knit together in in love Uh, really quick. I'm just going to hit these really fast. How do you practically stay united in love and make sure that secondary things, things that are less than Christ, don't divide us? First, let's assume the best about each other. When we disagree, and it happens, when there's a perceived defense, and there are, even if we believe somebody else to be wrong, let's assume that our brothers and sisters in Christ have good motives and are operating from a renewed heart. So let's assume the best about each other. Second, let's hold our own secondary beliefs lightly and open-handedly. If it's not what we believe about Christ, then let's first acknowledge that it's secondary and then consider the possibility that it might be us who's wrong. Third thing. Let's be active to pray for each other 
and go out of our way to show one another honor. As Christians, now get this, as Christians, we're called to love and pray for our enemies. Imagine what kind of tender hearts God wants us to have toward our friends. If the command is love and pray for your enemies, what must the law of grace be for our friends, for our brothers and sisters in Christ? Fourth, and I could do more of these. I'm just going to give you four. When we think we might disagree or be dividing on something, let's talk to one another, not to other people about one another. Let's just talk together. Come, let us reason together. I, I, I could keep going. And I want you to know, I, I don't have anyone or anything specifically in my, in my mind when I say these things. I just know that there are many things for us to divide over right now. And part of the way that we can fight for unity by faith is by remembering that we are knit together in love and deciding beforehand that we're not going to operate, divide over the things that the world would want us to. But we will make Christ supreme and everything else will fall in order under Christ. We, be, we will be united around him. So the first, assurance. Second, Second word I would give here is warning. Warning. Verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It's possible to hear something that is not true, but it's well said by somebody who sounds smart, is passionate, and that alone might be enough for us to believe what we're hearing if we're not asking what a mind renewed by the Spirit would believe about what, what it is that we're hearing. So commenting on this verse, R.C. Lucas writes this, there is a fresh responsibility laid on Christians to examine all teaching for the truthfulness of its content rather than the attractiveness of its packaging. There is a new call to be skeptical of exaggerated rhetoric the tendentious anecdote or the theatrical appeal for nothing is so dangerous as feeble reasoning allied to fast talking. The best appeal I can make here is for you to read the Bible for yourself. Daily. I'm here to help in any way I can for you to grow in Christ. But even anything I say should come as a distant second to the things that God has said in his word. And if I can just cut right through it for a minute and just, just name some things that I am concerned about, some warnings that I would give as your pastor one called to, to shepherd you under Christ, the chief shepherd. These things involve our minds, our, our, our hearts, and our, and our wills. 
And I'm, I'm deeply concerned that if you are not in God's word on a daily basis, whatever else you are in on a daily basis will have a greater and greater impact on you. I read news. I at least see clips of television. I hear things on the radio. Even stations that I think are are normally good. And some of it doesn't just bother me. It worries me. I'm disturbed, folks, by how many Christians seem to be more influenced by political opinion shows on cable, by their social media feeds, by the opinions of their friends than they do by the word of God. It's a real problem. And I know that's a temptation. I know it's a possibility because I see it happening in my own life at times. I need to ask how does the word of God speak to this? And what does one whose mind has been renewed and heart has been made alive, softened by the gospel, respond to this. So there's a warning here. Does what you are believing accord sound biblical truth? And does it sound like the mind of Christ? Last word, encouragement. Now, we might read Colossians, beginning of Colossians chapter 2, and just think, wow, things must have been a mess in Colossae. I mean, how much division was there? Lots? Was the church just breaking apart? Were false teachers and their toxic ideas tearing people limb from limb in this church? And then Paul comes along in verse 5 and says this. He says, for though I am absent in body... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So under the the weight of this pressure, under these outside forces, they were holding steady. Uh, These these two terms, good order and firmness, they came from the military. But Paul adopts them here for, for faith in Christ. He does that quite a bit actually in the New Testament. So they're staying together. They're, they're, they're staying in rank. They're maintaining the front under Christ. They're holding the ground of faith. Church, I feel the same way about us. I have concerns. Like Paul, this is a struggle that I as a pastor feel and have been immersed in. It's been a tough time, but I feel like Paul does. By the mercy of God, he's kept us in good order. He's kept us firm in our faith, and for that, there is much to rejoice over. There is much hope to take, and let's not move past this too quickly. 
It may sound weird to, to say that let's be encouraged about ourselves, but I think it's okay here because we're not, we're not taking pride in, in, in us. We're celebrating Christ in us because if not, for Christ, if not for Christ, we're not together. I don't just mean now. I mean ever at all. If we don't keep looking to him, we're not going to make it either. One of the most beautiful parts about being a church is looking around and realizing that there is no earthly reason for this group of people to ever be in the same space, much less say we've come here to do things like love one another and encourage one another and bear burdens for each other and support one another and weep together and rejoice together. And say, when we come here, we feel like family together. There's no earthly reason to do that. We're so different. But we have because of Christ. And the reason we've been brought together is far beyond this world. So let's not let earthly things tear a fellowship that is far be, from, from a far beyond this world. Let's not let that tear us apart. And the only way that's going to work is by focusing on Christ. That's why everything we do has to begin and end with him. Truth and love take a, a balance. Not enough, tr- not enough love and you're harsh with one another. Separating. You'll set, without enough love, you'll separate. It's just too hard to be together. Not enough truth, and you lack conviction. People sort of wander away because nobody loves them enough to tell them the hard things that they need to, be, that they need to hear to be brought back. Jesus is the perfect fullness of both. He's the most truthful person ever, and he is also the most loving person ever. So let's look to him. Let's ask for more of him. And and let's spend the rest of our lives going deeper and deeper into him. If you want to know what will matter today, more of Christ. More of the things that he delights in and more of exalting him matters. Let's pray, and then we're going to take communion together. God, may it be so in our church. May we have more of Christ. The things that would seem secondary, are secondary, would truly be seen as so. May we hold out truth. May this place be a buttress of the truth. But may we be together in love. For your glory and our building in faith, we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, 
visit us online at osefc.org.